0: Last week when we encountered the scriptures, we traversed a very, a very well-known passage in Acts chapter 1, verse number 8, um, when we covered verses 1 through 8. But today we're going to cover cha- Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, is what I would see as a parallel or a bookend to a very important topic. So if you want to turn with me our Bibles to Acts chapter 8, verse number 1. And when you get there, if you would stand in honor of God's Word. Verse number 1 in chapter 8 says this, Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc for the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to come to Scripture, Lord, that it, might, that it might be truth in us in a way that changes the world around us, changes the way we see the world, and changes the way we obey you. I pray, Lord, that we would be obedient, Lord, to the very fibers of our, of our, of our being, Lord, all the way down to our atoms, Lord, that every part of us would cry out in obedience to you. We ask for this in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Of the song that we just sang, famous by the way, um, because it is such a beautiful song, and because it has so many personal applications for so many personal lives, but I mean, if you 're not familiar with the story of Horatio Spatafor and his family, I will tell you he wrote that in the midst of a, of a terrible personal loss. He had sent his four or his his daughters and his wife ahead of him for a vacation, a much needed vacation in the midst of some of um, a work that he had had several setbacks in in his personal work life, but they were taking a vacation. And when he sent his wife and, and daughters on that ship ahead of him, the ship sank and he never saw his family again. He didn't receive word of that, you know, until he was already on his way. And when he did, he wrote that song. I mean, it's fascinating. There's more to it than that. But I, I leave that with you to say this, to say when we sing songs like this, we are, we are singing them because of our personal situations but we are touching the lives of those who sang them for their personal reasons. And it joins the church in a way that is very powerful. And I hope that you know that, that when you get an opportunity to worship God in a way that is echoed by others who have worshiped God, you become part of that family in a way that maybe you don't fully understand yet. I can't wait, by the way, you know, that the voices only piece. I can't wait to get to heaven, to hear the worship in heaven. I can't wait. I, it's exciting I don't want to wish this time away here But I'm telling you It's going to be something to behold uh, But let's to the scriptures now We see this picture here And something that I hope That you'll, you'll, you'll wrap your head around with me is If you remember chapter 1 verse number 8 the, the, the commission that is laid out to the apostles Is, is that they're going to be Jesus' witnesses They're going to be Jesus' witnesses in Jerusalem Judea and Samaria And to the ends of the earth Right Does Everybody say right yeah okay that 's what it says. It says that, that I mean that Jesus gives them this bit of instruction and it 's a very powerful instruction, and he lays out a plan for them, and he says, This is what you 're supposed to do. We get eight chapters into the book of Acts, citing that in verse twelve they're waiting like they were told to wait in two Peter preaches in f- chapter four there's persecution in Jerusalem in chapter five. There's more persecution. In chapter 6, the church is multiplying, all in Jerusalem. And all the while, the church is stagnant in Jerusalem. Not not that it's not doing what it's supposed to do in Jerusalem, but it is not going that next step. They're just stuck there. I, I, I posit a question. I just put it out there in front of you this morning, something that you need to hear me ask you. And that is, what has God invited us to do? a step beyond where we currently are, that we have just decided to stay here until that next step takes care of itself, instead of launching out into that next step beyond this one. Because that's a question that I think begs asking when you read the passage of Scripture here, where you see that Jesus told them that they would indeed be his witnesses. Read with me carefully. Verse number one, and point number one, coincidingly, it says, now Saul was consenting to his death. He's speaking about Stephen, and at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. I want you to know, point number one, is that God will use every possible thing to spread his word. He will use everything to spread his word. And in this moment, a little bit of, Temperature change is happening in the room of the church because they are getting too, too terribly comfortable where they're at. And this is a moment when you're like, this famous personality, Saul takes the st- center stage and he brings the heat on the church. And when he does it, they start to scatter. Well, some of them. Remember, the, if you just read verse number one with me, there are three words right at the very end of the verse. It says, accept the apostles. Now, who did Jesus tell that they were going to be his witnesses in Judea and Samaria? The apostles. But they just keep clinging to Jerusalem. They're supposed to be his witnesses in Jerusalem. Check, done. We're, we're witnessing in Jerusalem, guys. We're doing good. You know... How many of you have ever done this thing? When you buy a thing that has to be assembled, and you open it up, and you kind of lay the pieces out, and in the midst of the pieces is that package of nuts and bolts and maybe an Allen wrench, and I don't know about you, but there's a pile of Allen wrenches at my house. And then there's a book. And you look at the book, and it says, Instructions. But you've seen the picture. You know, the, the, the instruction manual is so good that they have decided to even stop putting words in it because they know people aren't reading it and they're not wasting their time anymore. They're putting it all in pictures now. I, mean, I was blown away the first time I opened up a piece of electronics and it was all in pictures. I was like, people who are able to use a computer ought to at least be able to read instructions, but don't get me started. But you know what I'm saying? There's a book there. And you're like, well, if I get stuck maybe I'll refer to the book. Man, and that is exactly what the church is doing here. They're like, Jesus has given us some instruction, and they're like, but if we get stuck, maybe we'll we'll try to rewind the tape and remember what he said. But I think many of the people of the world that we live in, they see this book as an instruction manual that if I get stuck, I'll break it out, and I'll see where I went wrong. Wouldn't it be better if you read it ahead of time and you knew what to do next? I'm just going to leave it out there. I mean, it just, it goes out and it falls. The, the instru- instruction here for you and me is what? If we read it ahead of time, we might exactly know what we're supposed to do. We might run it down. Instead of thinking, man, my life is sideways is there a book somewhere that would help us? I mean, I think at some point, all of us have gotten to this place where we're such a mess when it comes to assemble something. And, and if you guys want to just up your game, buy a piece of, 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 you know, children's toy equipment for your yard because that stuff is really intense. And all the things are scattered out and you're putting them together wrongly. I mean, I heard tale of a, of a, of a, a school that abandoned a large piece of playground equipment And the members of a church, it was given to them, and they took it, and they had no instructions, and they just laid it all out, and they put it back together just by guessing. Well, that was the previous church I pastored, and that playground equipment is is beautiful. It's wonderful, and I I, I marvel at the fact that they were able to do that. But man, that seems like the church all the time, though, doesn't it? We have the pieces and the instruction manual somewhere, and we're trying to put the playground together, and we're just guessing. And he tells them, go be my witnesses in Jerusalem, go to Judea and Samaria, and then go to the ends of the earth. And the apostles are stuck in Jerusalem. It says, except the apostles, it's there like a, like a stinging rebuke. We are eight chapters into a, to a, a text that has less than 30 chapters. We are almost a third of the way through, and they are still in Jerusalem. Point number 2 God can rearrange your world to change your mind about his will What's really cool is is that God said that there would be witnesses in Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria and it tells us here that they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria Is God's will perfect He wants witnesses in Judea and Samaria. If you're not going to do it, he will do it. He'll take whatever influence you have over the people that you've been working on, and he will move them there. If he's asked you to do a thing and you don't want to do it, don't worry. His will will be done. This is part of the thing where you see the balance between the perfection of, of God's perfect will and the permissible will of your nature and your human nature that sometimes is in direct conflict with what he wants to be done. And trust me, if you want to look for options to see evidence of disobedience, you need to look no further than the scriptures. You will see disobedience at every turn in the scriptures where you see mankind is involved. And if you're high on predestination and if you're high on the reformed theology, then what you'll say is is that God foreordains everything. And then I would suggest to ask you this question. Does he foreordain your disobedience, your sin? Because I would suggest that his will is perfect in spite of you. He will, he will make it work. And in this moment, you see it's happening. He's scattering this early church growth, and he is pushing them out to Judea and Samaria. And what happens next is amazing, because you see they're personally dealing with some of the things that are happening in their lives. Stephen was martyred. It says, and devout men came, or, excuse me, carried Stephen at, to his burial and made great lamentation over him. Will God execute his will in the midst of your grief? Yes, he will. Will he do it in the midst of your hardship? Absolutely. Will he use a little bit of difficulty, like scattering you out? Yes, he will. Because he's not afraid to rearrange your world, to change your mind about his will. Man, he will do it. Verse three, it says, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women committing them to prison. Saul's a bad dude. I mean, that's high theology there, right, Brother Ben? Brother Ben said that Saul's a bad dude. I mean, and everybody's like, I bet you that's the most astute observation you're going to make today theologically for this church, isn't it? Man, I love the story of Saul. Because Saul starts out and he is rabid. He is intense. He is completely 100% sold out to his purpose. And when God changes his mind about his will for him, he becomes completely, equally energized the opposite direction. Crave to be a Saul who changes to a Paul in your lifetime because there is nothing worse than somebody that is mealy before and mealy after their conversion. Some of you are like, I have to look the word mealy up now. That's your homework. Saul is energized and he's sold out and I always was, you know, I admire his passion throughout the rest of the book of Acts. Acts is beautiful in the way that it lays out a big slice of it's about Peter and a big slice of it's about Paul and you see the dynamic difference but I will tell you, Saul is getting the gospel to the end of the earth. He is fulfilling that Acts 1.8 even though he wasn't in that room because God will accomplish his will. You know, there's a there's a thing that when I was young that it used to pop up and every once in a while you'd see, you'd see somebody doing this, this elaborate demonstration, usually a carnival act of some kind where jugglers are, are juggling dangerous things, right? And then all of a sudden they turn it into something more. It's, it's no longer bowling balls or chainsaws, which is insane. But then they'll stand somebody up against a wall and they'll take a box of sharp knives out and they'll start chucking knives at it, right? And you know they're not supposed to hit the person, Right? And if they're trained well, they don't. The knife sticks above the head, beside the ear, under the arm, in between the fingers, at the, at the legs and thighs, and, and all around the person, but never hits the target. And it's terribly entertaining, isn't it? And the whole time you're like, are they going to hit him? Well, of course they're not going to hit him. We hope. The problem is, is that the church kind of looks like that sometimes where we have jugglers that are very, very fantastic at putting on a great show and it's really entertaining, but they never, ever seem to hit the target. God is getting to the target. And he's scattering new believers out because the apostles whom he commissioned aren't doing it. And Saul is wreaking havoc and it is causing a huge disruption in the midst. And as a result, verse number four tells us that it seems like what you would expect would be next is what? Then they all ran into their corners and cowered and hid and never talked about Jesus ever again. That's kind of what you expect here, isn't it? But that is not what happens. Verse number four, therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. I mean, if the the goal of Saul was to shut the church up, he's doing a spectacularly bad job. If the goal of your modern environment, which is juxtapositionally working itself into a a place where it is directly opposed to what the church is, oh, hey, you can have prayer, you just need to have it at church. Oh, you can talk about God, you just need to talk about him at church. Hey, you can talk about Jesus, but just not on social media. We'll put you in Facebook jail. And you're like, this is not supposed to quiet us, but it seems like it's working. Like everybody's like, oh, I don't want to. I don't want to offend anybody. This message is terribly offensive because it calls people to change their lives from the sin that's within them to forsake it and pursue God. It should offend you that you have sin in your life, and it should offend you that God wants you to change it, and it should change you so that you're no longer offensive to the one person who it matters to, and that's God. The problem is, is that we don't see it the same way they saw it. They were scattered, and immediately they just began to just vibrantly, loudly echo out the truth of the scriptures and they preach and they proclaim and bold proclamation is the end result. That's point number three, by the way. God will use the persecution on the church to scatter the church to proclaim his word further. I just give you this, this, this thing. Anytime there's persecution in the scriptures, what does it do? It might flatten things out but it sure spreads it out because you can't crush it. You cannot destroy it. it. It squishes. When the pressure is on, it's like a droplet of water. Take a droplet of water, put it on a non-porous surface. Put your finger down on it. When you squish the drop of water, and you pull your finger back, you're like, man, I got water on me and it's spread out on the, on the countertop. And this is what the church looks like when the persecution comes. It causes it to spread out and touch everything. Infecting the world with the hope of the gospel. You know, you don't want persecution because you like your comfort, but persecution has had a tremendous effect on spreading this message. They go everywhere. I love that it says everywhere. Everywhere means everywhere. Preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Man, if you don't get excited about this, you're like, then they're, they're being scattered and they're preaching to God everywhere. And now Christ is being proclaimed in their midst. Christ is being proclaimed in their midst so that they might know what it means to have a savior and a hope and forgiveness and, and some bit of invitation to come to the table of our king. And the problem is, is that when you look to scripture, oftentimes you see this model of the people and then you try to reconcile it against what's happening in church and what you realize is that they are dramatically different and it shouldn't be this way. He preached Christ to them. It says in the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip. Hearing what was preached, they heeded the words. Hearing what was proclaimed, they... What do we fear about the bold proclamation of Christ? That people will reject him? Not our problem. Excitement and enthusiasm to do it, because what's coming is profound. You see it, don't you? They're heeding the word. And seeing the miracles, hearing and seeing. Seeing the miracles, which he did. It says, for unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there's this, there's this picture of, of miraculous spiritual stuff happening, and you're like, now, brother Ben, that, that makes us a little uncomfortable. But, but let, me, let, me, let me make it okay. You want me to make it okay for you? If you were unaware that this is a spiritual issue, then you are completely blind to the matter. That this is a spiritual place and that these are spiritual things and that God is at the work of reviving your spirit and bringing it from a dead status to a live status and he's crying out to you to be saved and to be reconciled. And if you think that this is about anything else, then we are missing it. So when you see it says, unclean spirits, and possession, and then you see this this miraculous thing happening? When did we forget in the church that we could cry out to God of heaven and ask him to help people who were ill? Ask him for things that were beyond medicine. And I tell people all the time that I believe that there are three ways that people are healed, and the first one is your body is miraculous, and God made it to, to mend itself some, and he gave us some basic medicines and some things that doctors can do. This is the first way. You can be mended, your body can heal. I'm grateful for this, right, because the human body is terribly durable. Think about all the things you did with it. It lasts longer than your clothes, your cars, your couches, your furniture, your houses. I mean, it's amazing. But it's also terribly fragile and can be broken and hurt too. Well, the second way God heals is miraculously, and that's when he does stuff that only he can do. And when we cry out to God, we ought to ask him for these kinds of things because it says in the scriptures that it has happened. And it would be theologically bankrupt to say it has happened and that it has stopped happening. People ask me this, I remember asking a guy and I had this bold conversation with a guy who he was gonna ask me what I was gonna preach, it was the final night of a, of a kids camp, and a, a youth camp and the boys were, were all, you know, all week long listening to me preach and this other pastor from the community and I said, well I'm gonna talk about Moses and the burning bush and he said, And I talked to him a little bit. He goes, oh, you're not one of those guys that believes that God talks to you, are you? And I was like, heaven help me. What in the whole world are we doing with preachers that don't think that God can speak to us? It's theologically bankrupt to say that it happens in the Bible and it can't happen today. And I want you to know that he is in the midst of working out the spiritual brokenness and the spiritual oppression and possession in the world around us in a way that the scripture describes, but we dismiss it. And I know I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm way off the trail here, but I want you to see it. It is a spiritual issue. And the miracles he does in the medically unthinkable. And I will tell you that when you come to this, this is tricky because I believe that it's possible. But we know his will is perfect. So we ask for his will to be done. And we're okay when he says no. Because remember a couple of weeks ago when I said the vitamin N, that was a deficiency that we needed to add more vitamin N to our lives? Sometimes we learn that God says no, and that's okay. But we ask him anyway because if anybody can do it, he can, right? Never, ever get tired of asking him. But I want to spend just a little bit of time here in verse number 8. It's a short verse. As a result... Of the persecution, the scattering, the havoc that was being, the imprisonment that was going on. The gospel is proclaimed, lives are changed, people are healed, spiritual matters are reconciled. And then in verse number eight it says, and there was great joy in that city. Oftentimes what I'm told as a pastor is is that if you go in there and you talk about these kinds of things, you'll make everybody upset. I seem to think that if you go in here and you talk about these things, that the end result, if it runs its course, will be great joy. The evidence in the Scripture seems to make me believe that. How about you? I don't know about you, but there's not enough joy here. Maybe it's because we're not fulfilling the exact calling. You say, well, did you just say we don't have enough joy? Yes, I said we don't have enough joy. And I, I'm reminded there was a, a a very specific Supreme Court justice, a judge um, Oliver Wendell Holmes, if I have the name right. A junior, by the way, he wasn't. That was he was junior. He he was taught. was famous in the Supreme Court at one point, and as a result, people thought of his wit and they thought of his his brain as being this, um, you know immense gift to the bench. And they asked him about his career and he said, he actually said this, he said, I would have thought to enter the ministry instead of becoming a Supreme Court justice eventually. He said, but the problem was is that certain clergy that I had come into contact with behaved too much like undertakers for me to think that it was worthwhile. I think that there's a defeatist attitude in the church because we don't know what the end result means, that people's lives are changed, and as a result, there should be joy. There should be enthusiasm and excitement. And when we when we get together to come and worship, it ought to be exciting. We're, get to, we're gonna get to go and we're gonna to sing about our creator. You know, the song service this morning is beautiful, and we're talking. About these praises and prayers, we're singing about God and we're singing to Him. And if that doesn't make you excited because it changed my life, then we need to look a little harder at this. You see, joy isn't based on your on your situation, and oftentimes that's a misnomer. People will say, Well, I'm not, not happy because things are are bad or rough or troubles I have. Joy comes from somewhere else. You know, when you sing that kid's song, I got the joy, 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 joy. No one? I heard someone kind of utter it. Down in my heart, I've got the peace that passes understanding. Down in my heart. Where? I mean, the song is, I mean, it just lays out question and answer, call and response. When is the church going to get a little excited? about the bold proclamation of Christ in the midst of a community to oppose the sinfulness. There was something that Alistair Begg said a couple of days ago. It popped up and it was all over social media and I don't want to highlight the whole thing although the whole talk is outstanding. But he said something about at the end of it, he says that Christians ought to be ready to say that they are unprepared to rewrite the scriptures to fit our culture. Because of that, I stand before you today to say this. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus told the apostles that they should be his witnesses in these places. When they do not leave Jerusalem, he accomplishes his will anyway. So here's the question you have to ask before this invitation is unfolded before you. Has God invited you to something? If so, are you working to accomplish it? Because know that he will accomplish it with or without you. He wins without us. He wins with us. Man, it's so much more exciting when he wins with us, isn't it? At least for us. I want him to have the victory, and I want to be right alongside of him when the victory is celebrated because, man, I think that would be the best place in the whole world to be, don't you? I think that we ought to run at this in such a way that it's like, man, we are just running alongside God, and when he stands still, we're standing alongside him, and when he stops completely, we stop with him. But when he starts moving, we start moving, and we don't have to be reminded. And I think that is a powerful illustration in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, which I think is phenomenal that Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, and Acts chapter 8, 1 through 8, are kind of bookends. We added the verses and the chapter numbers so much later, but God is laughing at us a little bit. It takes you eight chapters to figure out that I'm going to do what I'm going to do. So, the question this morning is, is Have you joined God in what He's invited you to do? That first could be salvation, secondly, to something much bigger. You know, one of the chief goals as a pastor is for me to equip you to run down the ministry that God is calling you to do. If it lines up with the scriptures and it lines up with the focus of the church, and if it doesn't, we ought to talk about whether or not we should do it or not. But don't ever hold back and feel like God is leading you into something. Come and have a conversation. But some of you already know that God has already invited you into a thing and you have yet to do it. If you stay in your Jerusalem forever, he will fill Samaria and Judea with someone else. Would you stand with me today? Would you bow your heads? Lord God, we thank you that when we come to the scriptures, we are reminded that your will is perfect in spite of us. And we celebrate your forgiveness when we are the ones that are the, the weak piece, the, the link that is, that is broken. We ask for your forgiveness. But today, Lord, I ask that we would have the courage to come face to face with you knowing that the joy within us should be determined based on our obedience to you that when you are proclaimed and lives are changed, that we could have a sensation of victory that wells up in us something that cannot be stolen by the hard and bad things that are around us. I ask, Lord, this morning that we would have courage to respond to you, to come to you, and to ask you, Lord, what's the next step? Where should I go from here? And how in the world can I get this gospel into the ears of those who need to hear it? I ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.